Hi everyone, this is Lou Meluso from RAM Radio, reporting from the Fort Smith Regional Art Museum, located in beautiful downtown Fort Smith, Arkansas, where we bring you the best in fine art exhibitions, art education programs, and exciting events. In our studio, we have two very special guests, curator Chris Crossman and artist Timothy J. Clark. Chris Crossman was the former director of the Farnsworth Art Museum in Maine, and he ushered the museum through two decades of growth. He is also formerly the chief curator of American art for the Crystal Bridges Museum in Bentonville, Arkansas where he assisted Alice Walton in building the permanent collection of both historical and contemporary American art. Timothy J. Clark is a watercolorist of renowned status. Known for his expressive interiors, urban landscapes, portraits, and figures, Clark's watercolors, oils, and drawings are in more than 20 museum collections including the permanent collections of the Smithsonian National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C. We are so fortunate to have both gentlemen in our studio today to discuss watercolor and Timothy J. Clark Masterworks on Paper, which is the current exhibition at the Regional Art Museum here in Fort Smith. Welcome, gentlemen. It's great to have both of you here at Ram Radio. Hey, we're, we're happy to be here. At least I am. I think you are, too. Yeah, Arkansas is one of my two favorite states, <laughs> Maine and Arkansas. Good. <laughs> I'd like to have something of a roundtable discussion today. Uh, I've got a couple of questions for each of you. And then, Chris, I know you have a few questions for Tim as well. Chris, watercolor is and has been for many years a popular artistic medium. Can you tell the, our audience a little bit about watercolor's place in the history of American art? Well, that's a huge subject, and I don't know that I could summarize that in any kind of uh, coherent fashion other than to say most of the major American artists from, say, the 1850s on practiced watercolor. Uh, often they were also oil painters and sometimes sculptors, sometimes architects. But watercolor has special characteristics that it seems that many American artists took as a challenge to experiment with, to try different things than perhaps had been tried before, and to develop it as a, as a kind of personal means of expression that you know, could say different things than maybe an oil painting or a sculpture or, or any other kind of art form for that matter. Great. Tim, I want you to tell us and our audience about the genesis of your interest in the watercolor medium. We had talked previously about your early interest in photography that later evolved into a more painting focus. What was it made you decide to focus on painting as your artistic expression? Well, there, there was a love of imagery that I've had since I was a child. And... It didn't matter if I got the image through photography, drawing, painting, oil, watercolor. 
I, I just cared about it, even filmmaking. And I found somewhere along the line that I was able to get the images I wanted much, much closer to my heart and soul with paint than I was with the, any of the other mediums, that, which I just mentioned. And uh, so, and somewhere down the line, I made a very deep commitment to painting. Mm-hmm. Well, Chris, I'm over to you. I know you've got a few questions that you'd like to ask Tim. Well, it's a, you know, it's, it's a pleasure to see all of Tim's work in one place, all framed and in a beautiful space such as you have here. Just to maybe touch back on that first question, it's been said that uh, watercolor is the American medium. In fact, it was said by a prominent art historian who's since passed away, Donaldson Hoops. And he had published a book on that very subject. But I'm wondering what Tim might think of that. Is it specifically American masters you're interested in or other, other artists that, that might be more important to you as, as in terms of their influence on your work? Chris, of course, the medium of watercolor has been taken to a very specific place by Americans, and it's different. But we couldn't have gotten there without flattened shapes of the Japanese watercolors or the great sense of atmosphere and the, the sensibility of man and nature with harmony or man sort of just relationship with harmony, sometimes not in, not in, in, uh, in great peace that we see in Turner and the great freedom of execution that we see in Richard Parks Bonington, who was really an unknown watercolor painter to most Americans. But by the time it comes to America, people like Winslow Homer become known for, for painting his personal life. And he also paints a relationship between man and nature. He's carrying that same theme that we see in Claude and and in Turner, and those things pick up, they become very important to me, especially Edward Hopper. And the John Singer Sargent just, he handles watercolor with such ease because he has a commitment to drawing. All of those people who, who I just mentioned who are Americans really use it almost as a diary. Hmm. Well, I certainly agree with all of that. I think uh, what strikes me about your painting, Tim, is the fact that uh, it looks back towards those artists that you talk about, but your own work is very different from that. And I was scratching my head the other day trying to figure out what that was. To some extent, I think it's the way your brush just simply moves. And the fact is the subject matter seems to be whatever it is in your paintings can be a person it can be a still life it can be a group of objects on a table but the real subject seems to me to be movement and in a sense i mean i think that is what watercolor uh in general does better than just about any other medium it's an interesting thing because i'm a i'm a west coast figurative artist at this point, I live on the East Coast more than the West, but my, my core and training comes from the West Coast. And they, they made sure that anyone that got out of the good schools in Los Angeles knew how to draw in a way that would imply movement because the film industry was hiring them for storyboards and 
and just concept drawings. And so the great god in Los Angeles was Rubens, but there was also a marvelous artist named Rico Lebrun who knew how to move your eye. And compositionally, we, we learned how to move the eye. And and it was very very difficult to to learn that. So you you know when you say watercolor moves moves the eye well, well if you look at Rubens, Rubens is very dynamic. So anybody who was Baroque knew how to make your eye flow through the painting. And if you're not careful, you just got the eye to flow. They also said, tell us the truth on who you are and make your heart move too. And that's really been what I've been trying to do. So for you to pick up on that, someone said that, that even my still life, my inanimate objects have a, they, they look like they're ensouled. And uh, I, and maybe that's a little too kind, but. Yeah, there's a uh, painting that is in this show, which is among my favorites, uh, Raymond Small's workshop, mm-hmm. which is your father-in-law's workshop in Maine, is that correct? My late father. Late father in law. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, if you go, if I go back there and I find him, I'm going to yeah. be. Afraid. Yeah, and it's this sort of plethora of uh, woodworking tools and wood and and just the the detritus of a of an active workshop. And that's a painting where it it doesn't seem to have any place for your eye to rest, which is what makes it such a wonderful painting. It's it's kind of a, a realist version of a Jackson Pollock painting. It's all over, and it just keeps your eye, you know, bouncing from one thing to the next. Was that an intentional thing that happened with that, or do you think about that when you paint? Uh, well, I did think about it because people like uh, Janet Fish were doing pieces that just moved every through everywhere. She's she's really a realist, Jackson Pollock, and those ideas were hitting a pretty high point 20 some years ago when I did that painting and so that that wasn't on my mind but there was also that room was so cluttered it took a long time to get it clearly organized in my head and executed and so I I worked on it over four seasons I really worked on it about a year now that's not a year every day but I went in there every time I was in that in that uh, Marriott's family's home, I would take my easel up there, and and in summers it was sweltering, and you couldn't work very long. In the winter, I would actually go up there with a thermos full of hot water to pour my water because the water would freeze in my tray if I just used cool water. So if I was up there for a couple hours, the, it was below freezing in that that room. So it was, it, it, and that helped me feel the the whole sense. I, I timed it. To kind of look like spring, and, and I and I think that the little light over his his vice was supposed to be the place to rest. But uh, if you found no rest in there, the uh, <laughs> well, you know, uh, it's a workshop. Too. Try it again. Yeah, right? it's a workshop, and you're meant to work. And you know, it, obviously, he was working like you do on several things at once. Anyway, it, uh, it's a fascinating picture, just to sort of scan and take in, you know, one section at a time. I'm concerned and, and interested in some of the more technical uh, aspects of the way you paint, Tim. And, you know, one of the things that have crossed my mind is, uh, you know, do you use an underdrawing of some kind or how do you start your painting? That's a great question. And, and, and the reason I say that is that I was trained backwards and forwards. And so sometimes... I'll do a drawing first, 
and then run washes on top. Other times I'll just start with washes and then let it dry and do the drawing on top. I'm I'm kind of like a like a southpaw boxer who's been converted to to fight uh, conventionally. I was trained to be able to, to come at it many, many different ways. And however I feel, maybe just to upset the apple cart, I'll change the colors that I use on my palette or I'll change the way I approach things. Or it just depends on what the subject needs. That, that subject needed a long time. Yeah, watercolors kind of unforgiving. I mean, what happens when you when something happens that you really don't want to be there? Can you change that? Yes. You can. Yes. How does that how does that work? It depends on what you need to change. There are a number of techniques and the problem is is that if you're not careful you can lift up the paint and then you've damaged the paper and so sometimes you have to restore the paper. You have to go back and there's things called sizings that go in the paper. You might have to resize it and let it dry and wait a day, but I I have no fear I, of wanting to change something. If I need to change it, it won't change. I'll do another paper, uh, do another painting. But yeah, it, it can change. And people who do it all the time are very, very comfortable knowing they can change. The Wyeths can do that. Yeah. Well, you, you sort of implied that change is possible when you said that the workshop painting was done over a four-year period. No, so. a one-year, four seasons. Four seasons. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, four-year. I can. Yeah. I could get a lot more for it. <laughs> <laughs> so how long does it take you, in, in general, to complete a watercolor? Well, what's interesting is a little painting that's also in this exhibition. In the middle of the time I was doing that workshop, I went to Hawaii. And I saw another artist up on a hill. And I looked at her through a good part of that, of a morning. And, and the light on her just kept getting better. And finally I said... I better paint it. It's been calling me. And I went underneath a, a little shed, like a little barn or garage, set up my easel. And, and I established that painting in 40 minutes, I think. There was a good friend watched, watched me do it. And he said, you, you finish that in 40 minutes. And, and I took it back in my studio. I thought, okay, I have a couple days work on it. I'd sat on my easel for two days and I didn't touch it. And I should get great credit for that because touching it would have hurt it. So it was established in 40 minutes. The other one took a year. It depends on the subject. It depends on the yeah. painting. It depends on, it's like raising kids. You don't know which, which uh, one kid needs a spanking. Well, no, you can't spank them anymore. But the other kid just needs an, an eyebrow raised. Yeah. That story does remind me of an incident when I was with a, a, a major collector uh, and uh, we were visiting the studio of Alex Katz and the collector was interested in a particular portrait of Ada, which was his wife and kind of one of his longtime subjects. Still is his wife. It's still, yes, <laughs> absolutely. Yes, Ada, sorry. Uh, but the collector asked Alex how long it took him to paint that, that painting and it was mm-hmm. a good sized painting. He said, oh, I don't know, hour, hour and a half. And that sort of killed the sale right there. Mm-hmm. And it was very difficult to try to explain to the collector mm-hmm. that Alex is, was then, I think, 80 years old and it had taken him 60 years to learn how to paint a painting in, in an hour and a half. So there's that. I mean, the, the wealth of experience that you bring to your work, I think, 
absolutely enables you to find a, a subject that and and to complete it. Uh, right. Wait till I'm eighty. You're going to paint a picture of Ada? (laughs) (laughs) No. The interesting thing on that painting is that the woman who had posed for it, her husband came to me and said, I heard you did that in 45 minutes. I'll give you $500. Nobody's worth $500 an hour. And I said, no, well, you don't pay me for the 45 minutes to take to create it. To take me, pay me for the 50 years I learned how to do it in 45 minutes, which is the yeah. same thing. Same story. Same yeah. story. Yeah. And, and I think Whistler said that Yeah. someone. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, we've talked a little bit about your technique, but I, I, I think there's a lot more that we could explore. And frankly, I think that's better left to doing it in person in front of an actual painting. So I... There's a, there's a whole bunch of ways of addressing watercolors. They're not just the way they put in a how-to book. You know, many, many different techniques that people use. And you don't think about the techniques. You just use them when you need them. Sometimes there's a fancy technique that I might use every couple of years when I need it, and it obeys me. Um, but it, it, the first time you do it, it doesn't obey you. It takes the tenth time. What about the uh, scale of your work? You, you work on sometimes a very large scale, Right. And sometimes they're quite small. And uh, in other words, you you you, you paint uh, a variety of different sizes. How do you figure out which size to to paint, or is that something that just sort of happens as you're working on the on the piece? Well, I have have well, if I have a really good idea for something, I'll, I'll it'll it'll wind up being large. I know I want it to be large. But but if I go in my studio and I and it's you have a responsibility for, to do a painting and I'll take a big a normal piece of professional watercolor paper, not an oversized piece, but a normal comes twenty two by thirty and uh, and if I I'll normally work that size. Mm-hmm. But if I don't know what to do, I'll fold it in half. Or if I'm working on location, I'll fold it in half and tear it in half. That's fifteen by twenty two. If I don't have a really good idea for that, I'll tear it in half again. That's eleven by fifteen. And then well, then it goes goes uh, uh, seven and a half by eleven. Eventually, tear it down small enough. You'll come up with something. <laughs> yeah, I you know some of the, my favorite paintings of yours are these very fairly small, almost sketch like uh, watercolors. Uh, mm-hmm. Particularly those California oranges that you painted some yeah. years ago. And lemons. And lemons. Yeah. yeah, I think they were lemons actually. Yeah. But there there is a little story behind that, and that is when. I grew up, there's a lemon tree in my yard in Southern California, but when I went to my grandmother's house in Italy, she was long gone, but that was f- almost 40 years ago, there was a lemon tree that I could see the water through the lemons off on the Mediterranean, I could see the Mediterranean Sea. And when I got back, I realized I had that in my yard. I had a lemon tree that I could see the water. I could see the Pacific Ocean. And somehow I just started doing these paintings and they... They, I think they meant something to me. They felt like part of my family and co- continuation. There's also a sense of rhythm and movement that I almost always put in there that leads your eye from one to the other. I tell you where to stop and take a little rest. Some people don't get that clue, but but most of them do. But they they again deal with you know rhythm composition and and, and a salute to sunshine. Hmm. So does light play a major role in your work? I think it does. Yeah, it, there's this great clue because in a lot of ways, it, we we go from interiors to outside pieces to 
you know, that are often urban landscapes or the figure with the light coming through a window or what have you. But I, I look very much at light as a sense, as a symbol of nature and, and a symbol of good and maybe a symbol of the creator. And then with the other things, I very often look at a symbol of mankind and how those two relate. If, if you don't have an idea bigger than, I'm going to copy this thing, it, it, your art gets boring. And I think that to have a, a bigger concept like what you've just hinted at, maybe the core of what I do. Your paintings also, I think, have a quality of warmth, and it's sort of a California light in some sense. Even the main pictures have that to some extent. I mean, it's a different quality in some in, in many of the main landscapes, but always there's that sort of underneath quality of, of light coming from within the painting some, somehow. And in your California paintings, your vanished and Italian Baroque subjects, Nessum Dorma, and et cetera. That light seems to be very, very much a warm kind of light. It may well be. The interesting thing, when, when Winslow Homer got to Maine, his first year or two, the, those paintings of Maine don't have that light, but then he would winter in the Bahamas. When he saw that tropical light, he learned to see that, and then he came back and he saw that in Maine. And when I started painting in Maine, my late father-in-law, whose workshop he was, he looked at some of those paintings, and, and you were dealing with atmospheric conditions, and he said, well, well, we don't have purple mountains here. We don't have those colors here in Maine. And, and my wife said, he's right. And I said, well, why don't you come out? And she said, my God, he's right. They're, you're, they're not used, we're not used to seeing those in New England, but they're there. And, you know, even Homer, when he passed, they would look for paintings of his to do a show at the Portland Museum, and there were none. They had to go outside the community to find his paintings there because people are used to thinking of it as gray, but it's not. Beautiful, beautiful color in Maine. Yeah, well, they, Everywhere. Also, they also say the fetch in Maine is, is Portugal. If you're is saying, what? The fetch. The, yeah. The, 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 the cut across. The, the, if you if you draw a line straight right. from the coast of Maine, because it's sort of angled, and you will end up not in England or Norway, which you right. might think, but you'll end up in Portugal. So there's right. a there's a quality of Mediterranean light, which is really odd too, that you find in Maine. Right, but but all the clouds from Portugal get blown over to Maine. <laughs> <laughs> they get all the rain and snow. Yeah. You know, I think that covers the major questions I have. So okay. piece where where someone said that it was insold that I I would rather use the phrase this way. Lisa Farrington, the art historian, said that my still lifes almost appear as if they're insold. Tim, I recall earlier this year, you came to RAM during the Will Barnett exhibition, and we were treated to a number of wonderful insights into Will Barnett's work. And at that time, you were explained to all of us that Will Barnett had a great influence uh, in your artistic development. Could you tell us a little more about that? Well, Will was one of the great teachers of the 20th century, or early part of the of 20th century, we have people like Robert Henry, great painter, great teacher, and William Merritt Chase. But it, at the end, we have Will Barnett, and there's really not anybody else who has great students like Cy Twombly and uh, Jim, James Rosenquist and Audrey Flack. And, and Will would go in my studio, and like Chris, 
he could look very clearly at what I was doing. He wasn't having me paint like him or give me lessons, but he would say, oh, over here, you clearly are going this way. People who, who help you, you recognize when you've really made sense make it easier for you to make sense again. I, I wouldn't, it's kind of funny because there's a huge loop back here because Will Barnett, introduced me to Chris Crossman across the, the room here. We became friends instantly. Oh. And uh, so there's a connection. As it really kind of puts a bow on everything. But Will, Will knew how to look at art better than almost anybody and, and also where the art history lies. Hmm. Yeah, well, Will was remarkable. Died uh, a couple of years back uh, at age 101 and uh, or two, I guess, maybe. Yeah, And uh, my introduction to him, uh, just a you know, complete that thought a little bit, is that he appeared on my doorstep up in Maine at the museum I was working at at that time, the Farnsworth. Artists would pop in from time to time. It's summertime in Maine, you know, so go go see what the uh, local museum is up to. But unlike a lot of folks, uh, Will came to me to introduce me to some of the artists that he had taught. He could care less whether I was interested in doing an exhibition of his work, but he really wanted to promote some of the lesser-known artists that uh, he knew would really benefit from, well, you weren't lesser known at that point, but but some of the others were. And, uh, of course, it was a great pleasure to be introduced to Tim, who uh, and we've remained great friends since that time. Tim, as we open the exhibition, uh, Masterworks on Paper here at the Regional Art Museum, could you please tell our visitors what you'd like them to take away from viewing this exhibition? This community has a great love of the arts. I saw that from the first time that I was invited to be a guest here. And people are hungry for art. All the arts are related, whether it be writing or, or music or painting, poetry. That I, I very often, I look at part of my art almost as, as someone keeps a journal, almost the way Mark Twain wrote about different countries he visited. I paint that way and said, but this is who I am and how I respond to those those areas. And I think that it's a chance for people to come here and get a sense of of how I have interpreted these world, this world, but also how much we have in common with the, the other places, whether it be Maine or my commitment to figure drawing and my commitment to, to art. So in the end, it, I really want them to come and put their heart into it the way I put my heart into making it, put their heart into how they view it so they can find out what's most important to them. Uh, we might all be surprised what they take away. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's all the time we have for today, but thank you both for stopping by for the lively discussion. Well, thank you so much for having us here. We love being in Arkansas. I get recipes on how to barbecue when I get back to Maine. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're one of the few people that doesn't need lessons from the Ar Arkansan uh, <laughs> contingent. Uh, you're pretty good at that on your own. Well, you, you're a master at knowing how to select art, and I thank you for putting this exhibition together and curating it. My pleasure. Good, and thank you, Lou. Well, folks, that wraps up our show for today. But before we leave, let me thank all of RAM's members, donors, and corporate sponsors. They make RAM and this program possible. Our exhibitions are always free, so please stop by the museum and enjoy the galleries. 
and consider supporting our mission by becoming a member or a partner. Thank you for listening to Ram Radio. This is Lou Maluso, the Executive Director of the Fort Smith Regional Art Museum, signing off. Until next time, I'll see you at the museum.